Okay. Well, what is today? It's October the 15th, and this is our second lesson as we, I guess, get ready to begin our scripture study in Matthew. We looked last week at the person of Matthew. Took some time to do that. It has a bearing and impact, I think, in some degree of our ability to understand uh, Matthew and where he was coming from. Uh, later on, we'll see more about how, uh, as we do with all writers in the New Testament, how he, uh, the Holy Spirit moved him to speak in certain ways at certain times about certain things. And uh, all honor and glory goes to God for what He's done in that regard, but that's the way we got our scriptures. We understand that from Peter. But today, uh, I felt like it would be good if we look at the book as a whole. Now, this is not like to go back and give you an outline or anything like that. It's just to kind of touch on some of the themes and get an idea, uh, I hope a very accurate idea, about what the Holy Spirit was doing through the mind of Matthew as all this came together. We learned some things about him, I think, in doing this, at least I did. That, uh, <clears throat> I think Matthew, uh, in his, um, I don't know, the way he uh, writes and uh, the attention that he gives to detail and so, so forth, you know, he's, to me, he's right in there with Luke. You don't really see this until you kind of get started with it, but as you begin to break it down and look at the symmetry of what he wrote and how specific it was, particularly his knowledge of the Old Testament and so forth. Uh, it's pretty clear. He's a good writer, okay? He wasn't some dummy who couldn't do anything else but work for the Roman government and collect taxes. You know, he wasn't, wasn't like that. And we don't have the, all those details about his past life. As we said last week when we looked at him, we can only look at what his life produced and what it didn't produce. And we can see a good bit about him. So I began to focus just on the book of Matthew. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew is uh, the only gospel in one of the few books of the Bible that was not met with strong contention regarding its inclusion in the Scriptures. Uh, if you go back and look at the early church fathers and so forth, they gathered around Matthew, the book of Matthew, and Matthew as the author, rarely contested. Uh, you go back and look and you'll find that he's right up front, okay, in the early Christian era, you know, as the writer of, of that particular book. And we understand it to be the first book or the first gospel that was written, rather, the first gospel. Uh, so his uh, authorship is not challenged. And he was, of course, an eyewitness to so much that happened. Virtually everything that he wrote about, he was eyewitness to. Uh, so we've got that kind of, of account. So it's interesting, again, to look at it from that perspective. He, the Gospel of Matthew appears first in every list of biblical books amongst early Christians. It always appears first, maybe because its roots were in Judaism. And of course, that was certainly the mindset of Matthew as he wrote. It was about the impact of the gospel on the Jews. That's clear throughout. Uh, so we see that, and it really serves as a fitting bridge between Judaism and Christianity. And in large part, that's what uh, the Holy Spirit, no doubt, intended uh, for the book of Matthew. And of course, it's truths. It's the gospel. We have that today, and we're able to 
I use the word again, bridge that gap between Old Testament prophecy and so forth, uh, the gospel as it's revealed in the Old Testament being seen in the New Testament. It's just amazing as you go back and you, you see the hand of God on it. You sit down and you say, there's, there's no way that some man somewhere sat down and put all this together, you know, and then made it jive with the, the other uh, information in the Bible, other scriptures and so forth. That just didn't happen. It'd take, I don't have that much faith, I guess, <laughs> to believe it happened that way. No, uh, it happened just as Peter said. It happened when uh, initially when holy men of old opened up their hearts to the Word of God. And same for the Gospel writers and the New Testament writers as the Holy Spirit of God gave us this precious book and in particular Matthew. That's what we have. Matthew's Gospel was more quoted in the second century, I found out, second century Christian writings than any other book. Quoted more than any of the others. And it reminded me of a, <clears throat> of a comment that I heard, have any of you heard MacArthur's sermon, his last sermon that he preached on the book of Mark, which culminated his teaching through the entire New Testament? The name of that sermon is called A Fitting In to the Gospel of Mark. A Fitting In to the Gospel of Mark. And I would suggest that you go today when in your leisure <laughs> and listen uh, to that sermon uh, because it's uh, a wealth of information about the Bible itself, how we got the Bible, textual criticism, lower criticism, all that kind of thing. Gives you a really good understanding about that. But he makes a comment in there that when you go back to the early uh, church, the, you know, the first and second century, that there was so much written among the early church fathers and beyond by way of quotations and so forth that they can actually go back uh, and take all of that plethora of information and actually recreate the entire New Testament. Think about that. And I read that two or three times. I thought, is that what he really meant to say? <laughs> you know, and I went back and yes, what he's saying. And think about all of that information and how prevalent those writings were with the early church fathers that you can go back just from quotes, you know, from historical writings and so forth and church writings and recreate the entire New Testament. That's amazing. And it points to the work of God our Father and the Holy Spirit in protecting the Word of God. Nothing has been protected in terms of, you know, uh, a literary document like the Word of God. Nothing has. If you just look at it from a totally humanistic standpoint, and you'll see it's very compelling, very, very convincing. Most likely, he completed the gospel prior to the destruction of the temple, which, of course, um, most of us know that was in A.D. 70, maybe even as early as most people say around A.D. 50, somewhere in there. I did read some information that said, oh, no, it was like in 85. Some want to go back and make a case that uh, what he uh, uh, wrote about had to have been after that. But it uh, seems that the overwhelming majority hold that it was around A.D. 50, well before the destruction of the temple. Uh, we'll talk more about that later if we mention preterist and preterism and stuff, yeah. Before 50? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't be able to say that. I'm just saying that most people... Well, the destruction of the temple was in AD 70. So they're saying that uh, the best date would be around AD 50 
as far as the writing, yeah. But there are those who try to make a case that it was later. Yeah. But those are usually those who are, as we call, preterists, uh, because they see like the events uh, that you find in uh, Matthew 24 and 25, which we know is the Olivet Discourse. They see that as, they, they see all that being accomplished through what Rome was doing that culminated in the destruction of the temple, all that terrible stuff that happened. Uh, so, and that's the kind of thing that should, I guess, drive you to go and look and read and to learn more about that. So, that's, uh, that's just what I, I put before you this morning. Possibly he wrote it from Antioch. People have different views about that. Uh, and I just noted one thing here that I was looking at. It said the first clear evidence of the gospel's use was by Ignatius, who was the bishop of Antioch. Uh, so it may, may indicate that that's where it was written from, but we, we certainly don't know that. And it is, of course, quite simply, uh, at least from Matthew's standpoint, written primarily to Jewish Christians. Now that might have been his human heart, that might have been what he was doing, that might have been his great love, just as it was for Paul, who loved the, the Jews, he loved his brethren. He said, Paul said, I could wish myself accursed, you know, if Israel could be saved, but what did God call Paul to do? Was he the, was he the apostle to the, Christ, to the Jews? He wasn't. So it, said, it said plainly that Peter was called for that. And Paul was called as the apostle to the Gentiles, you know. But that was his heart. You know, that's where he was, where they were going. And I mention that just to say once again how the Lord God, through his sovereignty, through his preeminence, through what he has determined, takes... Somebody like Matthew, which we've already looked at, who's had a changed heart. And he uses him and the spirit that now indwells him. He uses Matthew, who he is, what his personal motivations are, what his leanings and skills and characteristics are to accomplish his perfect will through the scripture. That's what happens. That's what happens in every book that's written and that we embrace today as scripture what happened. Well, we began to look at some of the messages and themes of Matthew. And of course, y'all know I've been working diligently in this uh, elder training program and uh, I'm seeing some of this information again and I'm glad it's, it's a little bit redundant to me because it reminds me I got to know this stuff. Uh, so, uh, but we look primarily at five discourses, five primary discourses from the book of Matthew. Now, chapter uh, 5, 6, and 7, of course, we know is the Sermon on the Mount that includes the Beatitudes, but that is one of the major discourses that you'll find, the first one. And you might remember, too, that Matthew deals with themes. He's not so much hung up on chronology, let's say, like, like Luke is in writing uh, 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 his gospel and in writing uh, Acts. Uh, so you'll see every now and then, and we'll discover them as we go through, there's some things that are out of order a bit in terms of when they occurred. It's because he's not primarily interested in that. He's primarily interested in giving you information about that particular topic, that particular theme. So just kind of keep that in mind, and I'm sure that will emerge over the next 10 years as we study Matthew. Okay, <laughs> uh, But he's just not super strict on that. There are some exceptions. I just throw that in there as we talk about these uh, major discourses. So Sermon on the Mount is the first one. And then from chapter 10, 
uh, is where you have the commissioning of the apostles and that information. And I'll move on through these. Chapter 13 is interesting because that's where he turns to parables. That's where he begins with parables about the kingdom. He talks about the sower, the wheat and the tares, the leaven, the mustard seed, the, the hidden treasure, uh, the, what we know as the, the pearl of great price. He talks about the dragnet and all those kinds of things. He uses these parables and they ask him plainly there, what is it, I think it's verse 11, uh, why do you teach him parables? And he says, you know, and I'll have to paraphrase it, I'm not turning to it, but he says, but uh, to these other people who want to believe what they want to believe, he says, it's not been given to them to understand. They're not going to understand. And he quotes Isaiah, he quotes uh, a verse from, Matthew, uh, from the Psalms. They're going to hear and they're not going to understand. And it's intended for you. It's intended for you. That's interesting. And we'll look at that and we'll unravel all of that when we get to um, uh, chapter... 13 in about five years. Now, I'm teasing y'all. We're going to get there. It's not going to go that slow. So you'll find that. So the third discourse deals uh, with the parables and so forth. When you think of Matthew and parables, you can think primarily about chapter 13 there. And then, of course, in 18, a discourse dealing with child, the childlikeness of the believer is the way it's titled. I thought that was interesting since what we mostly think about when we think about Matthew 18 is what? Church discipline. But... Uh, you know, they kind of go together there, okay? The childlikeness of the believer and relationships and so forth within the church. We find that. We'll talk more about that later when we talk about Matthew being a gospel for the church. There's a lot to say about that. And then lastly, of course, as I've already mentioned, chapters 24 and 25, which deal with Christ's second coming. And we know those two chapters, they make up what we refer to as the Olivet Discourse. So that's what you have. So we can break it down into those five categories to study it. And that's a good thing to do, to be familiar with those. It kind of gets us started in general when we want to go to a particular area of Matthew to find certain information. Some comments just about his work and so forth uh, that I had found uh, mostly for uh, from MacArthur New Testament commentary, he said that for the person who is called as the Lord's disciple and to one who is to represent him to the world, the gospel is more instructive. Well, when I read that, I thought, well, okay, that makes sense. But think about it a little deeper. Uh, when, we become, when we come to Christ and we want to know His Word, we want to know of his, uh, the impact of His Word on our life, we open up ourselves. We're anxious, if you will, if it's a good anxious, anxious in a good way to uh, see this sanctification process, this growth process in our life to begin. Hey, without a doubt, Matthew is a good place to go. It's filled with instruction, filled with instruction, both personally and, of course, for the church. And as we'll see, information about the coming king, what's going to happen later on. I couldn't help but think of a guy I used to work with in my, my past life. This was years ago, 20 years ago. and It's a guy I used to pray for and work with. He was a super smart guy, uh, but he was a super prideful guy. Uh, he did not know Christ, and uh, he had a lot of responsibility. He affected a lot of people's lives where I was working, and I used to always think, man, if you could just get your act together, <laughs> you know, so much could happen for the good. But with all the difficulties this guy had, he, he would tell me when, you know, because I was paying the Christian guy, 
he would tell me, oh man, you know, when I read, I like to read Matthew. I really like to read Matthew. And I was thinking about that the other night because that stuck in my mind because I think, why is he drawn to Matthew? I never, I never could make that connection because he obviously didn't understand, first off, who Matthew was, this truly humble guy who referred to himself as a tax collector, and we've talked about what that meant. Uh, and I've often wondered, you know, I think that's just an example of how blind somebody can be. The comment that I just read, it said, you know, for the person who wants that in their life, for the person who's yielding themselves to the Word of God, Matthew will open you up and will challenge you. In fact, what was it just, was it three weeks ago that Pastor preached and he was talking about true Christianity and where did he go? Do you recall? Where did he go when he was talking about true Christianity? He went to the Beatitudes, remember? The Beatitudes. And we looked at that. So, I hope and pray that that dear fellow is still reading Matthew. I hope that he is. The lessons on discipleship are absolutely life-changing. And if we did nothing but go to the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, all of it, not just the Beatitudes, but the whole thing there is Jesus is standing there and addressing these people. And as I like to do, to try to, to, to give you enough information as we move through about the history, the culture, you know, what was going on when Jesus was talking. Sometimes we know where he was. We certainly know who was there most of the time. What would they have been thinking? How were they receiving this information? And in general, that's, that's kind of where we want to go each, each time we teach. I want to hear it like they heard it. And then the Holy Spirit will make its application to us in this day and time. And it will be the same. And that will be one of the miracles of God's Word that we'll see clearly. The Gospel of Matthew is about kingship. It's about kingship. When I'm doing my studies and, and, and prep and the elder training, when I go and look at Matthew, it's always, it always says king there everywhere. It's about kingship. And this is the way that Matthew is going to present him and portray him. And you can understand that, understanding his Jewish background, right? Because to him, he's the Messiah. Okay, he's the long-awaited king. He's the one who came by my tax office one day and said, come on. And I just got up and went. I, I left it behind. I left all that other stuff behind. I went and I followed him. This is the guy who had that kind of impact on my life, as Matthew might say to us. And that's the way he presents him. And he sees him later as the fulfillment. And he had some knowledge up front. A lot of knowledge, I'm sure, came later by looking at the life of Christ, being witness to so many things that Jesus did, all those wonderful miracles that took place that could not be denied. Matthew was there for that. And he's looking at the great king. And he begins to think about the coming great king and what the Old Testament Scriptures say about the ultimate reign of our King and Messiah. So, the coming great King becomes this, this overriding theme as well. Matthew mentions something that you don't find in any other places in the Bible. He talks about the kingdom of heaven. Okay, He doesn't say the kingdom of God. He refers to the kingdom of heaven some 32 times. You won't find that anywhere else in the Bible. 
And some say, well, why did he do that? And I saw one comment that alluded to the fact that, well, he did that out of respect. Okay, he wasn't going to say kingdom of God and use that word, you know. You know, a lot of times the Jews wouldn't, wouldn't say the word God, you know. They talk about Yahweh or whatever. Uh, and here he refers to the kingdom of heaven, which, of course, we know and understand is the kingdom of the redeemed. That it's a term that just talks about the, the inclusiveness, the completion of what God has done through his plan and through Messiah. And that, that phrase is unique, unique to Matthew. So he goes back and, or, and causes us to go back and look at some verses, you know, from Scripture all the way back, say, to Genesis 3.15, which... If you look in your study Bible, probably no matter what kind you have, it'll talk about Genesis 3.15 there as the first gospel declaration. That's those verses where it talks about Christ bruising Satan's head, you'll be familiar with, and that Satan would bruise his heel. It goes back and it brings that out and it develops it about what that truly means. And we go back and we do find the gospel in that statement there. Paul talked about it in general in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. He talks about that crushing Satan's head. He goes back and he uses that same terminology. This was Messiah. This is what Messiah would do. And there was this clear understanding that there was this battle going on and that man would one day stand before God and that man needed a Savior. And that this Savior is clearly the person of Jesus Christ. Matthew believed that, and this is what he wanted to convey, and I believe did convey. Other scriptures, uh, Genesis 49.10 speaks, uh, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Talking about Messiah and Messiah's reign. 2 Samuel 7.16 And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the declaration from Old Testament Scripture. David calls the coming one the King of glory and the Lord of hosts in Psalm 24.10. The prophets speak of the great King as both human and divine. John, through the Holy Spirit, revealed to us that He is the Word made flesh. He is God among us. And Matthew would later say the same thing in his writing. The prophets speak of this great king born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14. You're familiar with that verse. And he would be forsaken. He'd be stricken. He'd be pierced through. He'd be crushed. He'd be chastened. He'd be scourged, oppressed. He'd be afflicted. Isaiah 53 will tell us all about that. His name would be Emmanuel. And we read that, of course, at the end of that Isaiah verse in 7.14 where it says, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And it ends there, and then Matthew comes, quotes Isaiah, and he tells us plainly, which means when he refers to Emmanuel, that means, Matthew 1.23, that's God with us. That's God in flesh. That's our Messiah. Zephaniah tells his people that when the king comes, he will be the king of Israel. He'll be the Lord in their midst. Zephaniah 3.15 So this is what they were looking for. And this is what we have. It was the way it was going to be and it came to pass. The whole New Testament acknowledges Jesus as the promised 
great king. But Matthew is the first of four books in the New Testament that report the same gospel. So it's important for us to keep in mind that there's only one gospel. There's only one gospel message, one good news, the message of Jesus Christ. But it's given to us with four different authors, four distinct perspectives, if you will. And I alluded on what the Holy Spirit does in using that. We have today just what we're supposed to have. It's the same message, but with a different emphasis is what it is. It's a, it's a wonder to me. And again, that in itself speaks of how divine the Word of God is, the way it's come to us, the way it's laid out for us. I hope it does that for you. Matthew, again, his predominant theme is about the kingship. But if you look at Mark, you're talking about the servant of man. This is the way Mark presents him. Oh, I'm so tempted to start on Mark. We'll have to do that in a few years. But Mark sees him differently. You know, he just goes right to the life of Jesus even in the Gospel. Forget all that birth stuff. He just goes right to it and deals with it. And that's the way he presents it. Just a word about Mark. And there are 18 or 19 times throughout the book of Mark he uses a phrase like, He's awesome. I was astounded. Uh, I was just overwhelmed. I was shocked. And it's a, just a couple of words that are rendered different ways in English words. But he's just awesome. And that's what he goes back and talks about. And that's the way he ends the book. In, in chapter 16, verse 8, you know, where it actually ends. That's what he says. We were amazed. We were just all amazed. That's the way he saw Jesus. That's the way he presents him. Enough of that. Luke speaks of Him as the Son of Man. Jesus in His humanity. Jesus in putting on flesh. What that means. You know, what He accomplished for us. He became, you know, in His obedience and was that perfect sacrifice for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. And then John, of course, presents Him as the Son of God. The Word in flesh. And all that comes together to proclaim the blessed gospel, the one singular gospel message that we proclaim as believers. The same Jesus is shown to be both Savior, uh, well, rather, He's both sovereign God and servant man. This is what He is. I would think your minds would go to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, where it says, We have not a high priest which cannot be touched, with the feeling of our infirmity, but was in all points tempted like we are, thank God, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. That's, that's pretty well capsulated right there. What He did for us and what that provides for us. Right along the lines of what would I say? Uh, what is it? Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one, for He has made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's our great Savior. That's what He did. That's what He has accomplished for us. So the message of the Book of Matthew centers on Jesus being King. Jesus as Messiah, His kingship. 
And it's clearly seen in virtually every passage in his gospel. And by that I mean dealing with any particular theme. And he's constantly putting him up so that his fellow Jews, if you will, can see that this is, this was your Messiah, okay, when he was here. And he still is. And he's alive today. Three general breakdowns, if you will, regarding the book of Matthew would lead us to see that Matthew first reveals him. He reveals Jesus. Then secondly, he reveals the rejection of Jesus. And you'll see this theme throughout. He deals with this more than anybody. The rejection of Jesus. Uh, and then ultimately, as we'll see, the return of Jesus the Messiah. That's very general, but you can see that clearly as you go through and study those first couple of chapters there dealing with his birth and so forth. And by the time you get to, to uh, chapter 3 of Matthew, you're already into John the Baptist and all that. So he's revealed, he's rejected, and that's a dominant theme. And then, of course, the return and his ultimate rejection toward the end on the cross in chapter 28. We'll see that. We'll see that clearly. So Matthew's got it together and he's laying it out for us in his own way, but with no doubt specifically guided and directed by the Holy Spirit of God. I put my, a note from MacArthur in here. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is Christ's manifesto to us. His declaration about who He is and what is required. This, starts, this Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 through chapter 7, he, he remarks that the miracles are His royal credentials because the Old Testament talked about Messiah and what He would do. Those are His royal credentials. And then the parables portray the mysteries of His kingdom. You know, He would give these parables out and He'd already explained to them why there, and, and what was it I said, chapter, verse 11, I believe, of chapter 13, why he was speaking in parables when they asked him. And yet they would still come back and say, explain the parables to us. Tell us what this meant. You go back and see it clearly with the sower and so forth. And he lays it out plainly. And it's so good for us to go back and to read that and to see the specific impact that the Word of God must have on our life if you and I are to have a true transformation. That's what that's about. Because there's a lot who pick up the seed, right? And the seed falls as it will, and we'll, we're going to break this out and, and in different places. And it's choked out. Uh, and, it's, and it's stolen away and all these other things that happen to this powerful Word of God. But we see clearly what it reveals when it's received through faith and repentance. What does it reveal? Let's just go there for a moment. What does the Word of God reveal in a person who has truly received it through faith and repentance? What will you see? What? Fruit. Fruit. That's the way it works. It goes a long way around, you might say, to make that point. Why don't you say that? Well, this is more, this is more <laughs> compelling. And that's what we have. That's a wonderful thing. Matthew gives much focus on this element of rejection that we mentioned. Uh, and you can see it from the beginning. There are attacks on Christ and His family. I mean, if you go back just practically, look, I mean, Jesus' mother Mary, she's in danger of rejection before the birth of Christ, right? What could have happened to her? 
Hey, Joseph, by the way, what could have happened to her? Stoned to death. Okay. Herod threatens the life of the child, does he not, in a horrible, horrible way, and does what? Kills the newborn babes there in Bethlehem under the age of two years old. His parents are forced to flee from Egypt because of that rejection. His herald, John the Baptist, was what? What happened to John? Cut his head off. Yeah. Jesus had no place, he says, to call his own. He said, I have no place to lay my head. I'm on the road. In Matthew's Gospel, when you read about the cross and so forth, you know, it's about the Lordship or, or, or Jesus' Lordship. There, there's no friend or, or no loved one there at the cross. I mean, go back and read that. Nobody's there. It's all about the scoffers. It's all about the mockers who were there. And I put it here to read, but, and I'm not going to for time, but it's Matthew 27, verses 38 through 44. And they just railed at Him in rejection. The thief's on the cross, you know. Save us. Save yourself. But it doesn't include... The repentant thief's uh, plea, it doesn't include that. Matthew's not focused on that. And you'll see he'll leave these details out because that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about how Israel rejected its Messiah. And you see it says plainly, the scribes and the Pharisees says, He saved others. Let him save himself in a mocking kind of way. And it's all about his rejection at that point. But Matthew comes back and he's ultimately going to show us Jesus as this returning king. That's the way he's coming back. And from Matthew 24, 30, he says, You will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and with great glory. He's talking about his second coming in that passage. He will come at an hour when you don't think he will come, Matthew 24, 44. He's not going to leave us with the rejected Jesus. He's going to leave us with the glorious King of kings and Lord of lords. That's where He's taking us. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, He says, He is coming in glory and in judgment. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit at His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. He's going to have the ultimate victory. He's going to be seen for what He is, King of kings and Lord of lords. And the Bible tells us that every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus is the Christ to the glory of God the Father. That's going to happen. That's going to happen. We see a number of details about the characteristics of Matthew's Gospel. And I went to the uh, Tyndall New Testament commentary for these comments in this particular outline. There are several but I like this one because he talks about, first off, he gives a six here. First off, it is a Jewish gospel, obviously. It's a primary theological interest of Matthew throughout. It's clearly seen. Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament hopes obviously begins even with the genealogy. What does he begin with? He doesn't begin with Adam like uh, was it Luke does. He begins with Abraham. And that's where he starts, with Abraham. The application of Old Testament texts to Jesus' ministry are clear. You know, I said last week that he quotes the Old Testament 99 times. 
99 times more than, than the other gospel writers put together. Does Matthew use those quotes? He picks up and, and documents, and again, through the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' application of the Old Testament law by reference. You know, you see that when he's talking about divorce and the Sabbath and, and things along that line. Or his reference to Jewish scribal teachings when he's talking about the things that the Jews do. You know, they tithe mint and cumin and all these kind of things. Matthew knows that. And also he talks about these things in a way he doesn't explain them. Okay? He doesn't explain them because he knows his Jewish audience knows what that means. He's not going to go back and explain all that. Now, I've got a couple of more examples here somewhere. They're on down the list here. The nature of the Christian church versus Judaism. Clear, a clear distinction in his writing. Oh, here it is. Matthew's language expects the readers to be familiar with Jewish customs. He uses the word raka. You remember that? He talks about how we think about our brothers and sisters. You know, and if you say raka to someone, well, that has a Jewish context, okay? But he doesn't explain that because he knows that the Jews know what that means. Anybody know what it means in your studies? Do you recall to say someone is raka puts you in danger of hellfire? What does it mean? It means you empty-headed fool. That's what it means. You good for nothing, no account, dead brain, nothing, okay? You don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't even supposed to think about people like that. I mean, think about that. And if you ever get frustrated to the point and you think you're justified in holding that kind of attitude towards someone, go back and think about that Scripture that we'll get to. It's in chapter 5, verse 22. He talks about phylacteries, okay, but he doesn't. Define it. What are phylacteries? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, how the Jews would want a big one, you know, and say, oh, I got a lot of information in here about God. They'd wear it up here and they'd wear it on their wrist. And he knows they know what those things are. He talks of Christ, of course, as the son of David. This is the way he sees him. And there are nine references throughout the book of Matthew where he uses that. Secondly, he talks about it being a gospel for all nations. The gospel is initially restricted to the lost sheep of Israel, but ends with the Great Commission to go into all the world. And he makes that clear as we go through, as, you, as we go through the book. We'll see that clearly. There's a great paradox here, though, and it's that this most Jewish gospel can contain such apparently hostile language, it says, in relation to the Jewish nation. Matthew didn't didn't soft coat it. Okay, he laid it out there. In Matthew chapter 8, which where he talks about the, the centurion's servant. Remember that? He said, I've got a servant that's sick. You know, uh, you know, Jesus said, I'll, I'll, I'll go. But he says, no man, I, you don't need to go. I, I'm, I'm over people too. I'm a centurion. I've got a hundred people under me. And all I have to do is say the word. Now if I can do that, you can do that. What did Jesus say about that? Now, this guy didn't say it like I said it then. <laughs> he was much more humble about it. But what did Jesus say about that? Yeah, and that is a bam, bam, bam to Israel, right? I've not found that kind of faith, he says, in the entirety of Israel. Are you kidding me? A Roman soldier? What did that say to them in their day and their time? Whoa. Well, unfortunately, it didn't say that to them. They didn't, they didn't want to receive that. 
the vast majority of them. But that's the context of what he said. And he would say to them from time to time, you sit in the other Gospels, they'd be discussing something and Jesus is like, have you not read? <laughs> what? You, have you not read this? You, you claim to know the Old Testament. Have you not heard? And he would start with that, like putting them on the, the defense, putting them on their heels right now. You should know this. What did he say to Nicodemus? Are you the ruler in Israel? And John, of course. Are you the ruler in Israel? Are you the reigning know-it-all guy and you don't know this? That's the way he would approach him. How would you receive that? <laughs> I know. <it. laughs> to say nothing, we won't go to chapter 23 where there are eight woes. We won't do that. We'll save that. And then ultimately, chapter 27, you got the, he gets the people all worked up, right? As they're before Pilate. And what do they say? The people of Israel say, let His blood be on us and what? Upon our children. Somebody hit a nerve, didn't they? For them to say that? That was the Jews' reception of Jesus. And Matthew doesn't, as I said, he doesn't, he don't soft-coat it. He lays it out there. Well, it's a gospel for the church. A gospel for the church. You see the word ecclesia, okay, or ecclesia used. And it's the only time that it's used in the Gospels. It means the called out ones. And you'll see it in chapter 16 and in chapter 18, the first, uh, first part of uh, chapter 18 in verse 17. I call it 17a. But in 16, 18, it's where he says uh, to Peter, he says, you're Peter and upon this rock I will build my church, Ecclesia, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. And then, and we can say this is Christ's first word to the church where he uses the word church uh, and he's talking about discipline in that fourth level because he says if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church and he's talking to about the local church there the called out ones the the body of believers so it's a gospel for the church he covers topics of the sabbath he talks about divorce he talks about persecution in chapter 10, Christian relationships, as we've already said in chapter 18, one of our discourses, false prophets, pro false messiahs several times throughout the book. And it puts the church aware of false teaching, puts them on, on guard. Man, I'm going to hit right on it. It's also a carefully constructed gospel. And I alluded to this when we began Scholars recognize the care and literary artistry, it says, involved in the composition of Matthew's Gospel. Boy, I tell you what, he was so much more than just a tax collector, okay? So much more. And you can see that in his writings. It talks about symmetrical groups, the way it's put together. Um, these particular teaching sections, they say, actually makes it easy for memorization, <laughs> I hope. Um, the gospel is in no way a haphazard collection, he says, of unrelated stories. That, that's not what happened. There's a clear and definite uh, layout for it. Now, I attribute all of that to the work of the Holy Spirit, as we've already talked about. But we have that from the pen of Matthew. 
He frequently omits certain details, and there are multiple examples about this, which they just don't pertain to what he's trying to say. I gave you an example a while ago talking about the cross and what he doesn't say because his emphasis is on the rejection of Jesus, okay? It's not on the love of Jesus and handing off the care of his mother to John and all. He's not, not about that. And you see this in different places. And by way of example, it refers to one. For instance, in Mark chapter 5, there are 43 verses there. Matthew covers those topics in 16 verses. Okay. So what we're getting and what I'm trying to get across is that there are some specifics that the Holy Spirit has seen to it that we're supposed to get out of the study of Matthew. Okay. And we're going to do our dead level best to pick up on all those. And then lastly, it's a scripturally based gospel. A scripturally based gospel. Matthew shows Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's promises through the use of the Old Testament. Now out of those 99 times that I referred to earlier, over 60 of those are quotes from the Old Testament which deal in some way with the fulfillment. Okay, the Messiah and what He would do. Fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture, what it says about Messiah and what He would accomplish, what God ultimately would accomplish for both for Israel and for the church. Matthew conveys his inspired message as he closes out saying through the use of a holy, new, and Christian emphasis on the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We know that Jesus Himself said, I've not come to what? Destroy the law and all that. I've not come to change it. I've come to what? Fulfill it. I've come to fulfill it. And without a doubt, this is the way that Matthew saw him. And this is what the Holy Spirit through Matthew gives us. Where's my last one? Oh, it's right on top. I wanted to take just a minute, and I'm not going to go into great deal, but this will close this out if you give me like two or three minutes. You know what? You know what the synoptic problem is? You've heard that phrase before, the synoptic problem. Uh, and it brings to, to mind, is it really even a problem? But what it deals with is, is how, do we, how do we account for, how do we explain uh, not only the, the similarities, but the differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke? How, how do we do that? And people who read and, and study the Bible intently and look at it from every which way you can look at it, you know, want to answer those questions. And this is what they call the, the synoptic problem. Uh, but just to give you one idea of where people go with this, they have what they call the two-source theory, okay, to explain this away. Uh, so it's one of the modern theories. And what it says, it says that it, they make a case for not, not Matthew, but Mark being the first gospel written. They make their case for that. Uh, and then they say that there's uh, what they call literary dependence amongst Matthew and Luke in looking at Mark's gospel. And that much of what Matthew writes, he got from Mark. And much of what Luke writes, he got from Mark. Okay, that's, that's, that's where they're going with that. Uh, and again, they refer to that as literary dependence. It's the two, uh, what I say, the two-source theory, not just because they look and want to make a case for Mark being first, but they come up with this thing that they call the Q. Have you seen this in any of your studies? 
it's a fictional thing. Okay, they say there was another, okay, there was another source, another resource that they refer to as the Q, and that's a, it stands for the German word that means quell, which means source. There's another source that they used along with the Gospel of Mark, okay, to get this. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, for what to read and understand, it just doesn't, doesn't hold water. Okay, it doesn't. Now, I could say a lot more about that. I could tell you that the early church history for Matthew as the first gospel book is, is virtually unanimous. I mean, in every way you want to slice it, cut it, going back and look at antiquity history, the early church fathers. As we said earlier, it was the first book, it was the first gospel, I'm sorry, and it was written by Matthew. Okay? They would dispute that, obviously, because that's the first part of their two-source theory. And then it begs the practical question, why would Matthew, who was an eyewitness, want to rely upon Mark? Well, why would he do that? Okay, and there are a number of things. Um, there are others. Uh, if you go back and analyze the parallels, the things that seem to be similar, they are far less prevalent. Uh, MacArthur says far less prevalent than the differences that you find. And it looks like it's just somebody trying to build their case. Okay? There are other things. If you go, if you have a MacArthur Study Bible, you go to, not Matthew, but go to the Gospel of Mark. And there will be this information about the synoptic problem. It's not wordy. It's easy to read. And you can read, uh, what's it, eight different things that he brings forth there that show that, no, it's Matthew's the author and he was, the, he was the first one. So you can go through and, and read those. And uh, look at those. But ultimately, you know, any, he says, and this is the last one, any theory or literary dependence overlooks the significance of their personal contact with each other. Okay, we know Mark and Luke had a whole lot of contact with each other, right? I mean, they were companions of Paul. Okay, and we know that Matthew was mixed in there as well. I like what he says, that the simplest solution is that there is no... Synoptic problem. There is not a problem that exists. That's really the simplest solution when you look at the information. And you can read about that in your MacArthur Study Bible notes. Uh, well, go back and look at that. This is what we're left with from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. This is what we're left with. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by any act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And that's what we hang our hat on, isn't it? Yeah.